I have to apologize for my uh, gravelly voice. Started coaching, you know, this week, and we had a time trial yesterday. And sometimes when I strongly encourage the children to run faster, my voice elevates. Some people call it yelling, you know. So anyways, we'll get through it together. Uh, today we're going to be starting a new sermon series, and it's, it's going to be uh, predominantly centered around this verse in John fourteen six that many of you are probably familiar with, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I don't know where in my spiritual journey I first heard that verse, but I would imagine it was probably pretty early on in my high school experience. And at the time, a lot of times when I heard that verse kind of explained, uh, there was a lot of emphasis um, kind of on that second part about, um, you know, Jesus, in order for us to be, um, you know, to go to heaven, we had to believe in, in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and that Jesus alone was God and not Muhammad or Buddha or Oprah or whoever, okay? And so a lot of times when discussion was had around that verse, it primarily focused on the truth part of that verse. But I don't think that's primarily what Jesus meant or was really kind of talking about when he describes himself as being the way. I think it means something much deeper than simply being the only path to heaven, And so that's what we're going to explore in greater depth this year is the way of Jesus. Not so much what he said, but how he lived and how he did go about living as the Savior of the world. So here's an example of of what I mean. When I entered high school, I knew virtually nothing about the Bible. I was pretty much a blank slate. Um, So everything to me was new information. And long before I learned the facts about Jesus, about his identity, who he was, what he did, I learned about and experienced the way of Jesus. My cross-country team that I ran on in high school, we've had like 100, 110 kids on the team, and it was heavily populated with Christians, and including our two coaches were Christians as well. And so as a a 14-year-old, unchurched, didn't know anything about Jesus, punk kid, I started to notice some things as I hung around this group of people, a a way in which they did life, and I watched them, and what I saw was this. I saw people who were willing to make sacrifices for others that that put the team before themselves. I saw a group of people who um, wanted to include everyone, and so on the weekends when we would get together, it wasn't like only certain cliques from the team hung out or were invited. Everyone was invited, no matter what you you did. Whether you were a nerd or cool or whatever, um, I saw them being really patient with kids who were obviously just kind of lost and annoying, of which I was one, and not really trying to rush me along to be somebody that I wasn't, but really just patiently loving me as I kind of figured some things out. I watched them striving to um, be honest, to be forgiving, to be um, some people that cared about other people deeply. Um, And by watching them live the Jesus way, I began to piece together the Jesus truth and experience with them the Jesus life long before I ever prayed the prayer to receive Jesus. I don't think it's an accident that Jesus chooses to put 
those words in that order. If you put that first part up there again. The way, then the truth, then the life. And you see, I think it's interesting from our perspective as we look at that. I would say that most of us are most excited about the life, right? I don't know anybody, very few people that don't want the abundant life that Jesus says is is offers open to us if we want it. I think most of us would love to have that. I think some of us want some of the truth as we define it (laughs) of Jesus. And I'm not sure how many of us really want to do any of that in the way of Jesus. But it's interesting that that's really not the order that he discusses those things in. In fact, the problem throughout history with people who call themselves Christians is that they've divorced the way from the truth. And so you get things like the Crusades and the Inquisition and the institution of slavery carried on by Christians and bombings of abortion clinics and demonizing homosexuals and all led by Christians trumpeting the truth, promising the life, but whose actions or way were completely divorced from how Jesus lived and operated with people. I've recently read a book um, by a guy named Eugene Peterson. You may be familiar with him. He's um, translated the whole Bible into a version called The Message, you may have heard of. But he also was a pastor um, for over 50 years here in North America. So he's learned a lot about community and church and all that stuff. And here's what he had to say about this verse in John 14. He said, the Jesus way wedded to the Jesus truth brings about the Jesus life. We can't proclaim the Jesus truth, but then do it any old way we like. Nor can we follow the Jesus way without speaking the Jesus truth. So just leave that up there for a minute. I want you all to help me. I want you to look at those two statements, kind of the last two statements, and we're going to talk about um, the potential dangers of each of those approaches, okay? So the first one is this. We can't proclaim the Jesus truth, but then do it any old way we like. So what would be some examples of people trying to proclaim the Jesus truth, but then doing it any way they like? Like, what are some of the dangers of doing that? Or if you think of some examples of how that's being done in our society. Yeah. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. Okay. So give me an example of how that might be played out. Well, examples of being a hypocrite is not accepting everybody and loving everybody the way Jesus Christ does and judging anyone that comes in the church. Okay. And we're supposed to accept everybody no matter how they got here. We love everybody. Okay, That's good. Why. So not accepting people when they come in, maybe in the church, we might judge people by their appearance, their looks, their whatever, socioeconomic levels, whatever that might be, instead of loving people and accepting them like Jesus would, right? He hung around prostitutes and sinners and all that stuff, so what makes us better than him? Okay, great example. Anything else? Any other examples you can think of that? Proclaiming the Jesus truth, but then doing it any old way we like. What's that? I'm sorry, say it again. Okay, Westboro Baptist in Topeka, right? They go and protest at funerals and, and, yeah, say God hates these people and these people, okay? So supposedly proclaiming the, the Jesus truth, but not really doing it in a way that's very loving. So let's look at the flip side of that now. 
nor can we follow the Jesus way without speaking the Jesus truth. What's the danger in doing that? Crickets. Yes, Jake. Okay. Well, if you're following the Jesus way, you probably wouldn't think you're God. Okay, yeah. Okay, good. Okay, I got what you're saying now. Okay, good. Others could maybe perceive you as being God and you're not saying to them, no, it's not me doing this, it's Jesus living in me, right? That's kind of the point you're getting at. Good. What else? Any other examples of that? What does living the Jesus way boil down to without the truth about who he is, that he's God and he is the only way to go to heaven? Like, what does that become then, that life? A what? False teaching, yeah. What's that? Just being a good person. Just being a good person, right? Just being a moral person, right? Kind to people, loving, accepting, but not saying that, yeah, you can be all those things, but without Jesus, you're still lost. You're still a, a sinner, you know, a nice person who salvation is still in question, right? Because if we could just do it on our own, if we could just be nice enough people, why did Jesus have to come and die, right? So you've got to have the truth of who he is and what he did and what he claims and why that all is important, okay? So there's dangers in both sides of this. Peterson goes on to say this. He says, but Jesus as the truth gets far more attention than Jesus as the way. Jesus as the way is the most frequently evaded metaphor among the Christians with whom I have worked for 50 years as a North American pastor. In the text that Jesus sets before us so clearly and definitively, way comes first. We cannot skip the way of Jesus in our hurry to get the truth of Jesus as he is worshipped and proclaimed. The way of Jesus is the way that we practice and come to understand the truth of Jesus. Living Jesus in our homes and workplaces with our friends and family. So you see, if, if when I uh, arrived at my cross-country team as a freshman and didn't know anything, and I immediately got hit with Bible quoting, this is who Jesus is, this is what you need to do, without seeing the Jesus way modeled by them, it would have fallen on deaf ears. I guarantee you I would have been turned off, as a lot of the world is turned off by the way in which we approach sharing who Jesus is. But that way that they lived out in community paved a path for me to hear the truth, to be able to connect the dots and be like, oh, that's why you love me like that. It's because of Jesus, isn't it? It's because he loved you like that, and so you're just being like him. And that made sense to me. Do you guys remember this craze? WWJD, right? Oh, oh, slow down, slow down, slow down. So the first one, go back one, right? This is the purity ring, right? So, you know, you got that purity ring on, and that guy starts to make the moves on you, and you're like, we better slow down, buddy. <laughs> I'm not sure Jesus would do that. Right? Then we've got, right, the bracelet, right? How many of you wore that bracelet? I mean, it was part of your repertoire. Come on, give me the hands. It's all right. 
It's all right. Yeah, it's, it's good. Next one. Hey, <laughs> hot air balloons, right? What would Jesus do? Well, he'd go on a hot air balloon ride, apparently. Okay, what else? Ah, uh, the movie. What would Jesus do? The journey continues, right? Anybody see this movie? I never even knew this was a movie. Neither did most of you, okay? And sometimes they took a variation of WWJD and made some new propaganda. Who wants jelly donuts? Right? WWJD, what would Jesus do? And honestly, I mean, it's a pretty good question to ask. I'm not saying that's not a great question to ask. Maybe a better one is this. How would Jesus do it? How would Jesus do it? A lot of us kind of know the Sunday school answers to what would Jesus do, right? Most of us know, oh, he'd he'd love people and he'd accept people and he'd be nice to people. The problem is, is that doing those things comes with a cost as well. Because the way of Jesus that is full of truth and leads to life often flies in the face of our culture Sometimes even our church culture. One example stands out to me from the book of John. Most of you guys have heard the story in the book of John of the woman caught in adultery. Right? And the the church people kind of set this thing up. And and they they go grab this woman out of bed. They bring this woman into Jesus while he's teaching at the church. And they say, hey, the Old Testament law says that if somebody's caught in adultery, they should get stoned to death. And really, they kind of didn't tell the full story and really wasn't even quite right, but they, they, they gave it a shot. So this kind of puts Jesus in an interesting situation because if he says, yeah, go ahead and stone him to death, then the Roman law says that you can't carry out executions on your own. The Romans were in charge. So then he'd be in trouble with the Romans. If he doesn't do anything, then maybe the Jews wouldn't like him. And so they're trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus kind of turns it all on its head, Right? And he says this now famous phrase, whoever is without sin can cast the first stone. So as we look at that story and we think of it through the lens of not just the truth that he was talking about, but the way of Jesus, how would you describe the Jesus way in that moment? How did he handle that? What was the way in which he handled that? How would you describe that? You wouldn't. Oh, yes, Keith, good. That we're all equal. Okay, good. Yeah, excellent. What else? What do you mean by that? I mean, he thoughtfully considered what was going on and applied it to those people, all of the people, not just her. Yeah, okay, so he took in the whole, the whole scene. Okay, basically what I'm trying to get at is what are the things that his actions spoke that he didn't have to say? God is love. Yeah. What else? Forgiveness. The thing that stands out to me the most is just, he all, he's always telling us to look at ourselves in the mirror first. Right? Who are we, you know, to, to cast judgment on others when we haven't examined our own heart? And we wouldn't be so quick to condemn somebody else if 
our sins were put out in the middle of the the church for everyone to see, we'd be begging for mercy as well. And we bump up against these kinds of predicaments in life quite often. Times when we may have the right to act a certain way, a way that even most other Christians would affirm. But Jesus' radical love begs a different solution. So I've sat with several couples through the years of being in ministry where there's been an affair in the marriage. And, um, you know, that's obviously a difficult place to be. And when you've got somebody who has committed an affair, biblically, you know, Bible says you can get a divorce. That's grounds for divorce if you want to. And then sometimes in those situations, if you have an unrepentant person, uh, that might be your only option. Because uh, it takes two coming to the table to figure this thing out. Most situations I've been in with folks, the person is repentant. And so then the ball kind of puts back into the court of the, the person who was offended. And they have to decide, well, what am I going to do? What, what's the Jesus way? What would he ask me to do in this situation? And so I do know this. And, I, and I, I would try to counsel people in this way when we kind of get to that moment. Is what I do know that is true about me is that I was born an enemy of God. And I worshipped myself. And I wanted what I wanted when I wanted it. And in the midst of that reality where my heart was not inclined towards God at all, the Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when I had done nothing to deserve his grace, nothing to deserve his mercy, I'd done not enough good acts to be on his good side, he intervened and pursued me and extended grace and forgiveness to me when I didn't deserve it. And James said in chapter 2, verse 13 of his letter, he says this, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the Jesus way. And so I've challenged people who have the right to get a divorce, to engage in the higher law of mercy. Even though it will be very costly to your pride, even though there will be even Christians surrounding you saying, hey, you know, they deserve it. Get out. You deserve better than that. You see, the truth says, love your enemy. The way looks down from the cross at the people that just nailed the spikes into your wrist and says, I forgive you. The truth says, care for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the vulnerable in this world. The way realizes, I am the poor, I am the orphan, I am the vulnerable. I am the one in need. And the way understands that we, as somebody mentioned here, we are all on the same level. We are all in equal need. And it keeps us from feeling like we're better than anyone. The truth says, give your 10% tithe. The way realizes that it's all God's anyways. And holds on to nothing in this world. The book of Acts, 
If you guys have read that, it's right after the Gospels. It kind of records the, the beginnings of the first church of Jesus Christ. And the writer of the book of Acts is Luke. He's the guy that wrote the Gospel of Luke. Okay, so a lot of times people see those as kind of all one book, Luke and Acts together. And do you know what following Jesus was called in the book of Acts? It was called the way. The word Christian is only used once in the whole 28 chapters of Acts. But time and time again, it was called the way. Here's several examples of that. Asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. This is talking about Paul. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners in Jerusalem. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. If you look down the next one, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. Go on the next page and see several more. I persecuted the followers of this way, right? You guys can look down through the, the last couple of examples there, but six different times that I found Jesus' movement, it was called the way. So from the very beginning, there was this understanding that the truth about Jesus had to be married to the way of Jesus. You, you can't have those things without having the other. And in, in Jerusalem, right after the resurrection, the ascension of Christ into heaven, that there began to be this community. The way was taking shape, and it was extremely compelling. People were selling their property, selling all of their possessions, and giving it to the poor, the other people in the community. Widows were being fed and cared for. Strangers were being welcomed and, and, and taken in and, and treated like brothers and sisters, like real family. And people were drawn to this way. I want you to turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. It's page 759 if you're using the Pew Bibles, Acts chapter 2. Starting in verse 44. So this is describing kind of the first church. It says, all the believers were together had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." Can we be honest here this morning? What keeps us from living like that? Like what keeps you from after church going and selling your possessions and giving them to Wellspring? To our community, there's people in need here that could probably benefit from maybe you selling one of your cars. I'll just be honest with you. I'm putting, I'm putting myself in here. I'm not saying I'm doing this great either. I'm asking the question, what keeps us from living this way? Raise your hand. Travis. Pride, self-centeredness. Pride, self-centeredness. What else? Gary? Selfishness. Selfishness, yes. American dream. Or worldly things. Worldly things. Fear. Fear, fear of what? Yeah. Fear of not having enough, scarcity, 
right? What if I do this and then my family suffers? What else? Why don't we do it? Bill. Okay. You're not around people in need on a regular enough basis to where it doesn't break your heart enough to lead you to act. So we kind of keep ourselves away from some things that might make us guilty or stir up something in us, compassion. Yeah. Yeah, but we have a sense of entitlement that I earned this, right? I went to school. I made good grades. Why should I share this with somebody over here that's a slacker? Yes. Okay, I'm doing my part. I gave my 10%. I bet there's a bunch of other slackers in here that haven't been. Let them step up. But the story that we just read made it sound like there were some people that were giving more than 10%, right? That were selling everything they had and bringing it for the community. And it said that they were doing stuff with a glad and sincere heart. Doesn't sound like they were asking a lot of questions about well, do these people really deserve it? And tell me about this widow, you know, is she, is she on food stamps? Is she getting, you know, the things that she, I mean. When we really start to think about the reasons why we hold on to things, not many of them sound like Jesus, do they? There's probably enough room under your pews if anybody wants to crawl under there. I mean, I think there's some space. And I say all of this, guys, with a mirror in front of my own face. I'm not saying that I do this stuff. I'm saying that I'm challenged by it. I'm saying that I recognize in my own heart the things that I want to hold on to, the reasons why I don't. And somebody mentioned the American dream. You know, it's because I want my kids to have a certain standard of living. I want them to have a phone like their friends do. I want them to be able to drive to school like their friends do. All these things that aren't necessary that could be in the hands and the pockets of people who really needed it because I've decided that I want that for my kids, not really because of anything I've read in the Bible. I make decisions. We all do. My hope throughout this sermon series is that we'd lose half the congregation because they're tired of hearing me talking about challenging things. <laughs> no, it's that, uh, that we would get some very practical and challenging opportunities to wed the truth with the way in order to experience the life like never before. So that's one goal. Second goal, though, is to it's kind of to examine ourselves as a church community. You know, are we living in a way that's compelling to the people that are coming through our doors, that's, that's paving a path for them to hear the truth because they're, they're able to see the way married to the truth, it being lived out in a way that draws them in. A major hurdle for us that we just identified in America is that there's an American way that's infiltrated the church that's not biblical. <laughs> and you see some of these American ways when you go to church conferences. 
right? When you go to church conferences, who speaks? All the mega church pastors who've sold books and have 10,000 people at their church, right? Never like the guy with 100 people who's been faithfully serving at some country church for 30 years. Like, how could we possibly learn from anybody that unproductive, right? He's not growing his church at all, so he's not successful, so we don't have anything to learn from him. While the Bible says man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart, right? Guys, we want the life. We want some of the truth, but we also want to do it in a way that doesn't demand much of us. We live in an American culture one that, that claims to be Christian at heart, where the predominant storyline in our culture is one of upward mobility. It's a storyline of success defined by more. More money, more degrees, more titles behind your name, a bigger house, nicer cars, the latest iPhone, better vacations, nicer churches. It's a storyline that's rarely even questioned. So when our friends at church get a better job and they go and buy a bigger house, a nicer home, nobody even questions whether this way of living, of upward mobility, is even biblical. I've never heard a Christian say to another, hey, man, I heard you got a new job and and got a raise. Cool, man, like... Does that mean you're going to stay in the house you're in and then give away more money? That'd be, that'd be great if you did that. No. We applaud. We even expect that our friend would go get a nicer house in a nicer neighborhood because that's the American dream. But is it the way of Jesus? I think more often than not, we want to be Christians on our terms. And I say that knowing in my own heart that I think all the time about, I can't wait till Kristen goes back to work and we can get a big house, right? I mean, if I'm honest, I really have to be careful about what neighborhoods I go jogging in, I've found. That can have a lot to do with my contentment level that particular day. So what I'm sharing with you this morning is just a little bit of a teaser for next week. So if you want to hear more along those lines, I'd love for you to come back. So next Sunday, we're going to take a look at this predominant storyline in our culture of upward mobility. And we're going to examine it against the predominant storyline of Christ, which is one of constant and intentional downward mobility a way, Jesus promises, that truly leads to life. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just uh, come before you, and um, man, we just acknowledge, I do, that sometimes I can get really wrapped up in the truth. Man, I can say that I believe in you, and I believe that you died for me, and that if I accept you, then I'll go to heaven, and I can have abundant life. But I don't always really want to live the way that you live. I want to try to figure out a loophole to where I can get the goodies without having to give up much. 
And I don't think that I get to determine that. And so it's really challenging to look at the way you lived. And then for you to say to people, follow me. Do what I did. Live like I lived. Which completely flies in the face of what the culture is telling you is going to lead to life. And if you do that, then I will show you life abundant. But as long as we hang on to this fear and the security and the things, the comfort, the things that we want, we're creating other idols in our life that make it very hard for us to live and to embrace the Jesus way. And so, Father, I come to you in equal need here this morning confessing that I've got a whole armful of things that I want to take along on the ride as well. It's Jesus and my satellite dish and Jesus and my fourth car or whatever it might be. And God, I'm asking you as a fellow follower to begin to speak to me and to show me things that I need to release so that I can have more room in my arms to hold on to you. Because right now, these other things I'm hanging on to makes it hard for my grasp on you to be very strong. I might drop something I think I need in the process. God, we love you, and I'm so grateful that in the midst of um, you kind of looking down on us, chasing these things that aren't going to give us life, that you are really patient, and you are really forgiving and really gracious towards us. But God, you look at us and you're sad at some point because you see us settling for, for a less life than you have for us and you want us to experience it more abundantly. So we open ourselves up to you, God, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.